Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm. Serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. Hello, everyone. Charles Marshall here on the Neil Garfield Show. It is August 8th, 2019. And I'm very happy to uh, have Bill Pavlo back with me again to discuss our important topic today. Welcome, Bill. Hi, Charles. Thank you. So today we're going to be talking about the, uh, as I say in my write-up to the show today, the FARIA issue, we are revisiting that. It's known as free, FARIA preemption, which is similar to judicial estoppel. Uh, we often see that in a bankruptcy context, which we'll be discussing. Uh, first, I'm going to have Bill talk about the Chase angle here, and he will get into a lot of the nuts and bolts that are going to be relevant to the entire discussion today. Uh, as always, this show is brought to you by GTC Honors, Living Lies, and LendingLies.com. And it's made possible because of donations from listeners like you. Any amount that you're able to donate is appreciated, and you can donate directly by selecting the donate button on the blog at www.LivingLies.wordpress.com. Uh, so, Bill, there's this interesting case known as Bolduck versus Beale Bank. It actually goes all the way back to 1999, but it relates very specifically and even precisely to the matters under discussion today. Uh, tell the listeners the Chase interface and some of the other issues you came up with on this. Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, really in the context, I was, I've got this case, uh, in, in Oregon and it's a Washington mutual originated loan. And again, uh, Chase is coming in and saying that it never went through or it was never sold by WAMU, put it that way, and that they acquired it by the purchase and assumption agreement like they do in many of these cases. And, um, they made an interesting argument that really caught my attention, and I, I had to read it, I swear, about 20 times. I'm like, I, I, what is the significance of this comment? Now, in their motion for summary judgment, they basically said that this deed of trust in Oregon, they could find no evidence of two things. One, that WAMU ever sold it, 
or securitize it, which you know I, I do not believe is uh, a truthful statement, first and foremost. Uh, and number two, they said they could find no evidence that the FDIC was ever the beneficiary of the deed of trust. Now, I thought for a second, wait a minute now, it was never the beneficiary. We've seen literally thousands, and there's probably tens of thousands of assignments across the United States where the FDIC, through the attorney in fact with Chase, are executing assignments of beneficial interests and mortgagee rights uh, and recording them in the land records for judicial, non-judicial states. So I thought, what do you mean there's no evidence of the FDIC ever being the beneficiary? Now, it took me to some research, obviously. I, I, I've looked at this stuff so many times, and even over all the years, I still continue to see new things and new things that jump out at me. But it's very clear that uh, the OTS you know, seized WAMU on September 25th of 08 and turned it over to the FDIC as the receiver. And so in the documents filed by the OTS and the FDIC talking about the seizure, they say in there that they're doing it under the authority of the Homeowners uh, Loan Act, OHOLA, and also the FDIC Act and uh, USC 1821 section in there. And um, it's very clear that even for a split second, even if the loans were sold to Chase on the same day, at least for a split second, the FDIC was the beneficiary because they stepped into the shoes of the failed bank and they succeeded to all the rights and to all the assets and everything. So for at least a split second, the FDIC was beneficiary. So, And, and, and that's just assuming now if WAMU was still the beneficiary on the deeds of trust. Okay, so there's a, there's a big difference there. So when they come in and say, we got all the WAMU loans or beneficial interest to all these assets, it, that's just making this, you know, presumption, for example, for a moment. That let's say Chase arguably was. Now, we know they weren't, but let's just say they were the beneficiary. Then that would mean that the FDIC stepped into the shoes temporarily and became the beneficiary um, of this deed of trust and the millions of other ones out there. So that statement made by Chase is a bald-faced lie, okay? Now, in going to the research, I stumble upon this Bulldog Beal bank case because in, in all of the cases typically that you go in and try to argue or defend title or something that WAMU did or you try to defend uh, the foreclosure action or whatever, you get firea shoved in your face by Chase all the time. And, and the courts are happy to sign off saying, we don't have jurisdiction uh, because the claims process was not fulfilled by the deadline, so on and so forth. And they're real quick to shut down the borrowers on that firea defense. What's interesting about this old 1999 case is that at the time, the court took some of these uh, questions about title to these assets and title to the properties uh, of the failed bank and, and how they're transferred to the acquiring institution through the FDIC. And they, they state in this case that there's a lot of interesting questions and not a lot of case law on it, especially back at that time. And what's kind of interesting is that the court, even though some of the arguments were not made directly to the court, the court took some hypothetical 
uh, arguments and threw it out there in their analysis. And one of the things that caught my attention was they were saying in here that uh, Beale Bank might have made the argument that the larger purpose of the FIREA exhaustion requirement was to clear title to the failed bank's remaining assets so that the latter could be mustered or be sold. And that, that really caught my attention because, and I know there's a lot, there's a lot in here and we're a little shortened on time today, unfortunately, but what caught my attention here is this court is saying, look, if the FDIC stepped in the shoes, and I'm just correlating this to the Chase Wamu scenario, but if, if the FDIC was temporarily the beneficiary of this stuff, and Chase didn't get it by operation of law, then there has to be a way through the claims process, uh, whether it's filed or not. And in this particular case, they're saying that the homeowners weren't responsible for filing a claim under FIREA. They could sit back and wait until the FDIC were to file a default or something of that nature, but there was no requirement that the borrower in this Beal Bank Bulldog case file a claim in the process. And so they're basically saying that there's millions of uh, issues to title to these loans and that process, perhaps the reason, one of the reasons for exhaustion is to clear title. So I, I, I'm, I'm really perplexed by that, and I'm still digging my teeth into that. But here's a question that I, that I have for you, uh, Charles, that if Chase's position is that they got this by operation of law of these loans, which we know they didn't, there was no merger or whatnot, then why is there a need for the limited power of attorney from the FDIC is saying, Chase, you can do this in our name and do take these assets or file these papers and everything. Because when you look at a case like Wells Fargo and, and or uh, World Savings, Wachovia, Wells Fargo, and that fact pattern, I mean, they come in and say this was a merger. This was we were a successor in interest. We don't need approval. We don't need power of attorney. We acquired it by operation of law. So why the need for an LPOA, right? Well, I agree with you completely, uh, and the analogy you're drawing is well taken. Uh, we, we see assignments all the time that, that essentially ratify uh, this type of merger or some other often government-facilitated legal process that transfers title from one big institutional player to another, and that's clearly what's going on here. Uh, you would normally see a limited power of attorney in a context where somebody's coming into the chain of title, which you wouldn't anticipate. And in many cases, the third-party player who's coming in doesn't have a relationship to the to the mortgage issue, to the loan issue. You don't see them in the chain of title otherwise, and then all of a sudden they're here. And it does beg the question with the successor and merger and interest uh, legal framework supposedly allowing the successor to stand in the shoes of the former party, the former holder in due course, supposedly. The idea of having a limited power of attorney is actually misplaced. 
I mean, I don't know if they're doing it to kind of in an extra legal way, uh, shore up and fend off any possible objections to the merger if that's at issue. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what's going on here, but it's certainly something that can be uh, attacked, I think, to some extent in, in judicial process. Uh, the one, the one, well, one, of the, one of the things, and, and, and yeah, I want to just throw this out there because I think it's real important here in the, in the last uh, few minutes, but one of the fact patterns that you're going to see and, and that occurred you know, shortly after the receivership is, um, and, it, and for a number of years, really, and it happened in non-judicial states, is that Washington Mutual Bank, after they were closed and liquidated, uh, would continue to be named as the beneficiary declaring defaults on the notices of default sales, and even though everyone knew that they were dead and defunct, and they were Chase was making it appear as though they would show up at the sale as a third party buying it from the trustee uh, on the trustee's deed, and that the trustee was operating uh, on behalf of the failed Washington Mutual Bank. And the arguments are very loose when it comes to Chase saying, well, yeah, Blamu failed, but it was so big, and we could continue to use its name, you know. And you know what? That's not true. Because, first of all, we all know that a dead entity cannot conduct business any longer. There's no employees. There's nobody there, you know, for uh, to execute contracts in in the name of it, of the dead entity. So the life and the, the, the living on of the name, okay, even though that occurred, what it says in the statutes on the receivership under, and it's down in, in USC 1821, is that only the FDIC was given the authority or was allowed to continue to conduct business in a failed institution's name. And and they could do that, but only the FDIC. And when you read the power of attorney documents and the LPOAs and all of that, right after the, the bank failed, nowhere in there does it give Chase any authority to continue to go on acting as though they are Washington Mutual Bank. Now, could statements be mailed to borrowers with the letterhead on there, and they they made announcements that, yeah, for so there's no confusion. Keep sending your payment to that name or whatever. But to conduct business under that name, that was not allowed. And it's very, very clear in the statutes as to the receiver and, and being the only party who could continue to do business under that name. Yeah, that's the point. I mean, the FDIC role here is kind of similar to MERS. They're supposed to be a stand-in and an intermediary and a convenient shell entity uh, to allow a certain legal process to take place. Um, right. Given our limited time, I, I am going to wrap this up with uh, kind of a fundamental takeaway that I think a lot of borrowers potentially will be able to use. And again, as I always say, this is not legal advice. You know, we're having a discussion show, as always today, about foreclosure matters. Uh, the takeaway is this. The holding here, essentially, in this Bulldog case, it, it, uh, regarding the Faria issue specifically, because, uh, again, the, the Chase argument 
and and their Faria related litigation back to the Wamu uh, bankruptcy of 2008. Very similar analytically to this. And what's going on here is what's going on here is the the lender is claiming that there is no uh, ability for this plaintiff to move forward against them because this is an asset of the estate and they need to essentially do a proof of claim for monetary damages. And this court is rightly saying that where in a non-judicial foreclosure context you even sue to protect your rights as a plaintiff, it's absolutely all non-judicial foreclosure states and even cases, you have the right, according to this, of course, there's going to have to be other case law parsing this all out, but at least it's a leading edge. You have the right to sue for interlocutory or declaratory relief. For instance, that the institutional party trying to foreclose on you or issuing a notice of default and notice of trustee sale, they are not legally empowered to do that, that you think the the notices are void. So if you don't sue for money damages and you sue for interlocutory or declaratory relief or injunctive relief, then within your lawsuit, according to this legal case, it should move forward even if the other side, even if the other side brings up the judicial preemption argument or the more specific iteration of that, the FOREA preemption argument. So Neil will be back uh, next week. And uh, we uh, did have an abbreviated show today, uh, but we still got much of our topic. And we will will be back, Neil will be back next week. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.